you have a Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 16. Be reading verses 11 through 15. You can find that on page 539 of the Pew Bible. Lend your attention, this is God's word. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. It is an abomination to kings to do evil, for the throne is established by righteousness. Righteous lips are the delight of a king, and he loves him who speaks what is right. A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and a wise man will appease it. In the light of a king's face there is life, and his favor is like the clouds that bring the spring rain. Thus far the reading of God's word. Join me in prayer as we ask God's blessing on this word read and preached. Gracious and merciful God, we rejoice that in the face of Christ, the light of life has dawned. We rejoice that all of his ways are righteousness and truth. We rejoice that While his wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in him. And so we acknowledge that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of God, the King of kings. So we would sit at his feet even now, we would behold through the eyes of faith his glory, choicest among ten thousand, anointed with the spirit beyond all measure, grace upon his lips. In beholding him we would be strengthened in our faith and desire to be made more and more like him. But we know that this is our blessed end. So even now, merciful God, bring these things to pass as we consider Christ as the author and the finisher of our faith. We pray in his name, amen. And spending one more Sunday on... Westminster Shorter 86, which you can find on 974 in the hymnal, should be in the bulletin as well. We said that question 85 really gives the blueprint for the rest of the catechism. And spending 
this afternoon with question 86. But first, once more, I'll read for us uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. This is God's word. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Thus ends God's word. And then question 86 asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. Four considerations, the object of faith the gift of faith, the nature of faith, and the warrant for faith. First, the object of faith. True and saving faith has a very specific object. As we briefly considered last week, it is not enough to believe that God exists. It's not enough to believe that there is only one God. It's not enough to believe that this one God has truly revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Religions in general, the world over, have always affirmed the existence of the divine. Our recent hubris in denying altogether the invisible realm is a bad disease and an anomaly. But still, it's not enough just to affirm the invisible, the divine. The monotheistic religions affirm a variation of the God who truly revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We saw also it's not enough to believe that God or even Jesus Christ can do certain extraordinary things. We were humbled by the consideration of miraculous faith. Judas believed that the demons and illness would be subject to him in Jesus' name. Presumably, he witnessed that and had something that Scripture calls faith to actually bring that about. And yet, he did not have true and saving faith. All of these things fall short of true and saving faith. True and saving faith, the faith that God requires to escape his just wrath and curse, is faith in Jesus Christ for salvation as he is presented in the gospel. That is a very specific object and an indication of how one rightly understands and glimpses that object. Scripture is full of affirmations of this very thing, right? John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
Not belief in God in general. Not belief that Jesus did certain things at a certain time. But rather that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and he has come to save sinners, to bring eternal life. Our faith looks to God as he has revealed himself in favor towards sinners in Jesus Christ. Or as Calvin puts it, our faith looks to Jesus Christ clothed in his gospel. For the salvation that Jesus himself says that he came to work and that from God. We can learn a couple of things from this. It's not enough just to be open to spiritual things. That's very much in vogue these days. To be open to various spiritual experiences. This can be incredibly dangerous, actually, to be interested in spiritual experiences apart from faith in Christ. We might be tempted to hear encouragement in that because it's a break from the reigning myth of materialism that's been so long dominant. This titanic hubris that refuses to admit that there might be something real that you can't see. We might be refreshed and think, oh, they're interested in spiritual things now. It's certainly not enough. Really, you're just moving from the fire pan to the fire, as it were. To court spiritual experience apart from God's truth, the revelation of who he is in Jesus Christ, is to court disaster. To hazard a lostness, the likes of which is difficult to understand. Second, it's not enough to come to Christ expecting him to do things of your bidding, which he has not promised. It's very explicit. Christ presents himself as salvation. As we talked about this morning, we get all sorts of confused about this. He was pleased to work signs and wonders on a more visible, but again, less important level to teach the truth of what he came to do as the one who is the forgiveness of sins, as the one who has undone the stronghold of the devil, as the one who has conquered death and thus dispelled that poisonous fear of death. These are the blessings and many more besides that Christ brings. This king brings peace and freedom from Satan's tyranny. This king promises eternal blessedness in the forgiveness of sins, the righteousness with which he cloaks us, the righteousness with which he's at work in us. We come to him as sinners, and we entrust ourselves to him as friend of sinners. This is the call of the gospel. Third, our faith is intensely personal. By this, I do not mean that it is private. By this, I mean that it is directed towards a person. The object of our faith 
is a, perp a person. Christ isn't an idea. He's not a set of propositions, as important as propositions and ideas are. He is a person. True and saving faith looks to a person. Choicest among 10,000. Psalm 43. Just put things on sturdier footing in some ways, doesn't it? Because we're abounding in confidence towards a person. We're looking in expectation towards a person. One who has shown himself to be like us every way except sin. And thus we see the condescension of God in this way in meeting us in terms and conditions that we can understand. We know what it means to go to a person. The call to believe in Christ is the call to entrust yourself to the person and the sufficiency of one who is remarkable. And this is no slight source of confidence. I trust by now that you know that a portion of my heart longs to be one of Arthur's Knights of the Round. Trust that I've made that known by my literary references. Part of me wishes that I were a subject of Aragorn during the high noon of the reign of man in the halls of Gondor. The reason why a heart would long for such things is because in a way, that's what we were made for, to belong to the choicest king who has ever appeared on this mortal coil. The Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David. I trust you can see that it's in belonging to this king and entrusting ourselves to this king that such longings are fulfilled now by faith, but one day by sight. So much for the object of our faith. Second, the gift of faith. Faith is a gift. That's what it says. Saving faith, faith in Jesus Christ, is a gift of God's grace. A saving grace. Here we can recall all of the spiritual significance of many of the miracles of Jesus. If faith is likened unto seeing Jesus rightly, if faith is likened unto hearing Jesus rightly, we are reminded that in sin we are blind and deaf. If we are to see him and hear him rightly, God must open our blind eyes and unstop our deaf ears. This is what we are calling to mind when we consider that faith itself is a gift. That man has the capacity to, the, to believe, but he is crippled in that capacity. Just as a man with eyes who is blind is thwarted of the very purpose for which he possesses eyes. The eyes must be restored for him to see. Faith itself is a saving grace. Paul says as much in several passages, one of which we heard read in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
So you feel there the primacy of grace. Grace sits in that position of emphasis. By grace, you have been saved. Grace there is very plainly juxtaposed with wrath. That's how he starts the passage. You were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So he says, what you deserve is wrath by every consideration. That's what you deserve. What you have received is grace. And that leading unto salvation. So we can feel here that Faith is not working as man's indication that he is somehow worthy of God's kindness. In Paul's depiction, it's fallen mankind worthy of wrath. Everything that they bring to the table commends themselves further for wrath than what the elect have received. Grace including here faith. This is the gift of God. So in one sense, we can rightly speak about faith receiving God's grace, which we can speak in that way and must speak in that way. There is another deeper sense in which God's grace goes before faith. You see that? God's grace enables faith, which subsequently receives grace. Grace upon grace, if one were so inclined to interpret the passage that way, as some were. Paul states this explicitly in Philippians 1.28 when he says, It has been granted unto you to believe. The verb there, grant, is just the verbal form of the word grace. It has been graced to you to believe. From this, you can plainly learn salvation belongs to the Lord, front to back, entirely, comprehensively. While it's true that as a rule, none are saved without true faith, it is also true that, strictly speaking, our faith does not save us. Strictly speaking. We can rightly speak of faith as a condition or requirement of salvation, but we do not mean by this man's independent contribution. We do not mean by this the percentage of the part that man plays. The insistence that even our faith is a gift of God's grace places the whole of man's salvation firmly upon the mercy and good pleasure of God. Read Ephesians 1. Just the good pleasure of God there is striking. He was pleased. It pleased him. He was pleased. So he did this. So it's not surprising then which is the second observation, that Paul presses this very point home in Ephesians 2, that you are saved by grace by faith, and this, the gift of God, to the practical conclusion 
that all boasting is excluded. Utterly. All boasting is excluded. That's exactly what he says. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The design of salvation itself is intended to preclude boasting. We're always trying to shoehorn room for us to boast. The strength of your faith is a growth in grace. Your faith itself is a gift of grace. Your faithfulness unto the end, a work of God's grace. The proper response to all of this is humility and trust, which go hand in hand. And that brings us to the nature of faith. Three, the nature of faith. The word used, the words used in the question are receiving and resting upon him alone for salvation. So we're asking the question, what does faith entail? What does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ unto the salvation of our souls? To which the catechism gives the answer, it means to receive and rest upon him for salvation. So those words, those two verbs, receive and rest, are very intentional. Now, likely you've heard about the classical unfolding of the aspects of faith as knowledge, assent, and trust. And the catechism certainly fits with that explanation of faith. There's understanding of who Jesus is as Savior as he presents himself in the gospel. You'll hear the gospel referred to as the gospel of truth. There's an element of truth which requires knowledge that is indispensable, impossible to bypass when it comes to true faith. But it goes on to say that assent to this truth is necessary as well. Confirmation that indeed what he says of himself, what he says of me, is indeed true. Knowledge, assent, but also trust. That there is a personal reliance upon this person for the very thing that he says that he brings. This is the classical unfolding of faith, knowledge, assent, and trust. But you can note that the catechism doesn't avail itself of that distinction here. It uses these other words, receiving him and resting upon him. These are physical motions, as it were, physical activities, as it were, but note that they are passive activities, or active passivities, if you prefer. These verbs are taken from the many calls in Scripture to believe that avail themselves of concrete images of either coming to Christ, receiving something from him specifically, 
or hiding in Christ. So you can think of the great call in Matthew 11. What does Jesus say? Come to me and I will give you. Or John 4, I would have given you living water. John 6, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven, and he gives life to the world. Giving, giving. Christ is he's presenting himself as one who gives. In fact, he gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. He is the giver. Children, what do you do if someone gives you a gift? You receive it. You receive it with thankfulness, yes, but at bottom, all you can do is receive. That's it. You destroy the whole thing if you, like, take out your little piggy bank, and you're like, Mom, how much do I owe you? A gift cannot become an economic exchange. It's that which is received, and then the proper response as Scripture unfolds is thanksgiving. So again, we see here that indeed grace does go ahead of faith, but then faith may also be said to receive grace. That's what it means to receive a gift. This is the nature of faith. The other verb that's used to explain faith is that of resting. Receiving and resting upon him. You'll find pastors commonly referring to your daily experience of sitting on a chair. The chair is that which sustains you, holds you. You're entrusting your weight to the chair. Or use the couch, laying down. You're entrusting your weight to the couch, and it is the couch which upholds you, receives the fullness of your weight. Scripture uses probably more to the point of the resting image. Scripture uses the picture of Christ as a bedrock or a foundation, maybe even as refuge. So Psalm 2 declares plainly, blessed are all who take refuge in the sun. There the warfare of ancient Israel would have been the primary backdrop against which they would have heard it. Maybe you've heard of one of the, the citadels or the, the refuges that would be a safe haven to flee to in the time of war, in the time of attack. Like Helm's Deep, supposedly an impregnable place, where you go when the enemy is at its fiercest. Christ presents himself as this deep, as this helm, as this refuge. And you rest in the protection that that refuge provides. Or if you picture our faith as a house, Christ is the firm foundation, the sure foundation upon which the house rests. This is what Peter says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. You hear how he mixes those images there. A foundation that 
God has laid in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the assurance that whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. These two images, receiving and resting, I think warrant, especially in the light of what we said earlier, that our faith is in a person, this other verb that I thought was helpful, namely relying. To rely upon. I trust you know what it means to rely upon another person for something. I hope you have reliable people in your life. Business owners or managers know what a blessing it is to have reliable people at work. Husbands, wives know the blessing of having a reliable spouse. Children know the blessing of having reliable parents. The Lord Jesus Christ presents himself as eminently reliable. We are called to rely upon him entirely for everything that's necessary for life and God. This is what he means when he presents himself as bread, as the giver of living water. Life itself. You can find no more basic elements in human experience upon which we are utterly dependent. Christ sets himself forth at that level of dependability. Depend on me to that depth. Depend on me with that regularity. Depend on me. Look to me. This is what it means to be called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It means to rely upon Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is reliable. And this brings us to the last observation, which is the warrant for faith. The warrant for faith. What are we asking for when we're interested in knowing what the warrant for faith is? John Murray raises the question, what warrant does a lost sinner have to commit himself to Christ? How may he know that he will be accepted? How does he know that Christ is willing to save him? I trust you can feel the desperation and the need for these types of questions. They're desperate questions, as Murray highlights, especially for somebody who's struck with a sense of their sin. The sense of God's righteous wrath against sin. So the question is, what is the warrant? How do I know that Christ will accept me? How do I know that Christ will welcome me as a sinner? And the answer comes in the closing phrase of Catechism 86. As he is presented in the gospel. 
The warrant that Jesus will welcome us as a sinner. The warrant that indeed Jesus will welcome any and all sinners who come to him is found in the repeated self-presentation of Jesus as the Savior of sinners. You can call this the free offer of the gospel. You can call this the universal offer of the gospel. You can call it the sincere offer of the gospel. Whatever you call it, you're insisting upon the plain words of the Lord Jesus Christ and his truthfulness therein when he indiscriminately offers himself as a friend to sinners. John Murray writes, God entreats, invites, commands, calls, presents the overtures of mercy and grace, and he does this to all without distinction or discrimination. So earnestly does Christ desire to be seen as such by sinners that it is the final note that Scripture strikes. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Thomas Goodwin makes much of this closing note. And he presses home this heart of Christ unto sinners, unto you. I'm not talking about them out there. This is what you need to hear as a sinner. You need this heart of Christ to burn before your sight. For it is only with this vision do you grow in confidence and love towards the Father. You need this vision of Christ to burn before your eyes. Thomas Gooden writes, this is Christ's speech unto men on earth. Hereby he expresses how much his heart longs after them. we said this morning, there is no note that God has left unstruck in the symphony of calling sinners to receive the salvation which he has freely provided in the Son. He entreats, he commands, he persuades, he pleads, he summons, by which we see most plainly that a sinner is most welcome. In the Lord Jesus Christ, true provision from the Father, not bare provision, not a begrudging welcome, but the joy of heaven itself rings forth as a sinner casts themselves upon the beloved Son.
He couldn't state the matter any plainer, beloved. I pray that the Spirit gives you the eyes to see and the heart to rejoice. For this is the Savior. This is who he is. I pray he is the joy of your longing heart. How good and how great thou art. Give us the eyes to see, O Lord, and granting us the eyes, strengthen our vision. As we bow in meekness before the word of truth, which is able to save our souls. Bring forth the fruit that the Spirit alone can work, which resounds to your glory. As you build us up in faith and hope and love. And as the gospel of peace is published far as the curse is found. May these things be our encouragement, O Lord, our delight, as you teach us more and more what it means to trust you, to love you, to long to be with you face to face in Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.